In this episode of the Business of E-Commerce, I talk with Tanya Heath about launching an online fashion brand. This is the Business of E-Commerce, episode 50. Welcome to the Business of E-Commerce, the show that helps e-commerce retailers start, launch, and grow their online business. I'm your host, Charles Pulaski. I'm here today with Tanya Heath. Tanya is the creator behind Tanya Heath Paris, a business that designs and sells the world's first adjustable height shoes with removable heels. After four years of designing, the product went live in 2013, and they now have sold over 17,000 pairs of shoes and over 70,000 pairs of heels. I wanted to bring Tanya to the show to talk a bit about her journey and how she designed, designed and launched this product online and both brick and mortar as well. So hey, Tanya, how are you doing today? Very good, thanks. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, it sounds like an interesting journey. So I wanted to kind of pick your brain and hear a bit about the story and how you did this. So okay, well, did, sorry. Do I have my intro right? Let's start off there. So it's a you, you designed heels that are adjustable height, right? Actually, it's more like designing shoes that are adjustable height. Okay. So if you <laughs> back the intellectual property of adjustable height shoes, the first patent filed was actually in New York in 1904. And it was for, I, I can't remember it. I was looking at it back in 2009. It was quirky. It didn't work. And basically since then, there's been a whole bunch of attempts to get a shoe that could go from a high heel to a low heel on the same shoe. Why? Because for most women, I wouldn't say all women, but certainly most women, it's painful to walk around in a high heel. So the sort of holy grail of high heels would be a high heel that's only high heel sometimes and low heel most of the time so that you can be comfortable, you can be pragmatic, you can be safe, and you just put on that high heel when you really need it. Um, so we're the first company that actually made it work. Okay, very cool. So you're in, currently you're in Paris, right? I am. So the world's fashion hub. So is that where you got this idea from or where did this start? Or did you just see other people trying to do this or where did this even start from? It started from me because I've always worked in technology companies or in private equity, so one or the other. And I was usually the only woman on any of my teams. And I'd have to be well-dressed. I traveled a lot. And I just couldn't keep up anymore. I couldn't walk as fast as my male colleagues. If I was traveling, I'd always have to check my bag in. And then everybody would have to wait around for me at the airport because they'd just be able to take on a carry-on. Um, once I had a broken heel, I actually did a meeting with a broken heel and then more to the point, I couldn't stand the pain anymore. And it just became this nonstop existential dilemma. How should I dress today? And then by the end of it, I was actually thinking, you know, can I really take the Metro or should I take a cab? And my entire life just became ridiculous trying to, trying to, to figure out how to deal with my footwear. And I started thinking, you know, we can make high speed trains. We can put a man on the moon. We can do all of this gee whiz technology stuff. Why can't we use what we know about innovation and technology to solve a problem that really affects a lot of women worldwide? So this is really a, uh, a scratch your own itch sort of thing where you had this problem and you designed a product for you that other people also, um, you assumed other people had the same problem. That's more or less it. I guess it's gratifying to know now today that other people do have this problem. So certainly not everybody has this problem. In fact, I've got figures on it. Today, whichever way you scratch it, only about 35% of women wear high heels. Um, 
even if that's only occasionally. So it's certainly not for every single woman out there, but for the women who do wear high heels, we have a solution for you. And for a woman who doesn't normally wear high heels and probably might have to, I don't know, maybe her daughter is getting married or maybe she's getting married. We definitely have a solution for you. It makes it more accessible. So you have a niche and makes it probably helps to speak to that niche, right? Where you know um, it's not for everyone, you know? So let's just say guys don't wear high heels. So 50% of the population out of that, only 30% of women. So you know there's a very specific segment that you're talking to um, and yes, that probably I, helps. But for, you know, the, that's funny you just said so. Um, we live in France, you know, a country famous for having short politicians from Napoleon to, to today. And every single day, I'll get a man coming into the store asking why I don't do a man's product. Oh, so maybe you do have a uh, another 50% you're ignoring on the other side. <laughs> Perhaps. That, actually, there's room for somebody in this market, I think. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I've seen uh, boots with the very high heels so, for, for men. So I've definitely actually, seen that. Actually, a little bit time out. High heels originally were worn by men. Oh, So they came to Europe and Persia, and they were worn by men to keep their feet in riding saddles. Then they were adopted by men as part of court dress, and they only crossed into women's footwear in the heel form in the 16th century. Hmm. Never knew that one. All right. <laughs> so then what year was this where you were working and kind of had this issue and decided, hey, this, you know, let's do something. When did this all get started? I can remember when I decided to quit my job. It was really during the financial crisis of 2008. And it was the day the dollar broke. And it, for me, it was like I lost my religion. I didn't know what anything was anymore. And I started thinking, you know, the only safe thing today is potatoes. And I'd had this dream since I was 18 years old of being able to create this shoe. And I ended up just talking to people about it, nonstop talking. And everyone's like, you know, honestly, that's a good idea. You sound very passionate about it. Well, why don't you do it? So by... January, I was able to leave my company, and by February, I started working part time, or sorry, full time, on looking for a solution. So, 2008, uh, you started this, and then left in what 2009? It sounds like early. And That's then, right. So, about four years then of from when this from when this idea kind of started moving to when you actually launched. About four years. Right. So, 2009, I'm. I'm using the skill set I have, which is mergers, acquisitions, buying intellectual property. So I try to buy a company that looked like they had interesting technology in the United States. So they were in a Chapter 11 situation. The technology tested very badly here in France. People were comparing the shoes to dead donkeys, which, you know, that's a hard sell. So <laughs> You don't want to be selling the dead donkey shoes. No, you really don't. You really don't. So nine months later, I figured there was nothing out there that I could buy and improve. So I started working with engineers here in Paris, and we started working on our own approach. Initially, it was mechanical engineers and mathematical modelers. And as time went by, we added material engineers. We added people who could miniaturize the technology. So they came from watchmaking. And then the final sort of key ingredient was people who are good at, um, at um, shoes, in fact. So we got a lot of help on what a high fashion shoe should look like from the shoe industry itself. So you because you sell both the shoes and the actual uh, hail itself. So this is like a two part. Like you, it's not just the hail, it's actually the shoe as well you're producing. That That's exactly it. So basically, I guess the most well-known comparison would be like a Nespresso machine. Do you guys have those in 
we, we do. do. Yep. Okay. I'm just drinking one. <laughs> so basically, the shoe for us is kind of like the coffee machine, and the heels are kind of like the capsules. However, yes, obviously, our heels are less disposable, but it did mean we had to innovate on both levels. Got it. Okay. So then I'm curious, actually, when you went to purchase a company, what was that process like? Because that's something you don't hear people doing very often, even trying that road for the IP. Um, it, it was pretty straightforward. You know, you hire a lawyer, your lawyer's worth what he is or not. So I, you know, if, if there's any lessons to be learned, I strongly advocate um, checking over what your lawyer's doing. Um, you have to keep some sort of motion. And then the entire time you're trying to value the assets. So you're trying to see it really if there's anything there. Um, so I'd say purchasing a company is really quite easy. Sure, it takes money, but it takes a lot less money than actually undertaking research and development and waiting it out. So I think, yes, had I wanted to have that technology, I could have bought it. It would have been a lot cheaper, but I don't think we would have being able to create a company on a solid foundation. I think we would have had a bad product. So for example, the reason I didn't go forward with the acquisition was threefold. One, it tested badly in terms of aesthetics. Two, it was wobbly when I walked, so I didn't believe in the product in terms of answering the need. And then three, none of my patent attorneys here, and in France, to be a patent attorney, you have to be both an engineer and a lawyer, so they, they more or less know what they're talking about. None of them thought we'd get a European-wide um, patent on, on the technology. Okay, there was a patent here in the US, but not in Europe for this. There was a patent pending in the US, okay. and because I truly don't care about that technology, I haven't even followed what happened to it. I do know that the company's been revived a few times, so they didn't have removable heels. They had this kind of heel that folded under the shoe. However, I'm not concerned about it because it doesn't it doesn't meet the the sort of objective of being a shoe you can walk in. Got it. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, you don't have people very often trying to actually go out and purchase technology from smiles. That's always a uh, interesting. It's a different path doing that way, even trying to approach it that way. So then you decided that was a um, not a technology you wanted to go after. You have to develop it. Now it's 2009. You start investing. Um, and what was that process like? It was hard. <laughs> um, so prior to that, I'd always been, you know, reasonably well taken. You know, I was taken seriously. I had a good job. So I was, you know, at that time, I, I guess I had 25 years of career. And I was also a professor in an engineering school here in France of disruptive technology. And then suddenly to have, you know, this career that I'd carefully constructed, uh, not be taken seriously whatsoever. So people would smile at the idea. They'd say, why would you want to do that? Why wouldn't you just, you know, carry extra shoes around or, or people just didn't get it. So that was uh, on the one hand. And then on the other hand, everybody's telling you it's impossible because there's been so many attempts and nobody's ever made it work. And there's been attempts for the past hundred years. And some of the best designers in the world today have actually tried to make this this happen. So people's people were feeling, you know, why you, how will you succeed when you don't even come from the shoe business? Yeah, I think people underestimate when you start off going from that, uh, you know, big corporate, um, you have your corporate email address, uh, your corporate business cards, even when you just approach them with that email address, you're taken more seriously than when you you're off and you know, you, you're kind of on your own and you look up the domain and you look up the site and you're like, eh, okay, I, I this is a one person type of thing. 
people don't take you that seriously initially and just trying to approach vendors and attorneys and everyone like that um you have some like convincing to do to even even folks that you're paying to get them to want to work with you that that's definitely true but it's even possible that it's worse in france so you're in a culture which admires entrepreneurship i'm in a culture which now admires entrepreneurship but i'm sort of not that entrepreneur generation i'm a lot older than that and when i sort of embarked on my own my best friends would be screaming at me at, at dinner parties saying you're so selfish have you thought about your children and what about your family's finances and how are you ever going to pay for their university and what are you doing to your career did you really work so hard just to become some loser on, entrepreneur who will fail and so so what I found is, yes, sure, I didn't exist on a business card level, but I didn't exist socially either. Yeah, wow. It's it's funny because being from the U.S., and I think a lot of listeners are, That's a, it's a very different um, culture where it's okay to do that here. And, you know, maybe you tried for a few years and a lot of people do that and they go back to their full-time job and it's just something people do. And it's not a, you know, it's not nothing to be looked down upon. Um, so it's very different hearing that. Here it's changing, but it's taking longer. And I think it's generational. I'd say, you know, my children, if they wanted to become entrepreneurs, there's now courses that would support them. There's there's incubators. There's all of that infrastructure that's evolved in Paris since I started out. Okay. Interesting. So then 2009, you started this and it was just a kind of a, a slog to 2013 to kind of get the product developed. And when did you actually start getting being able to approach a manufacturer and saying, we have, you know, whatever kind of engineering documents we need to actually build this. Can you do this? And when did that actually start happening? So by 2010, October of 2010, we believed we had a technological approach that could work. We 3D printed it from a, from a prototype perspective. It looked promising. Um, we then went to manufacturers in the shoe industry with our plans, and that was sort of the first level of dissonance. So on the one hand, you have to understand the product development happened in one of the best research inst institutes of France. So it's the research arm of École Centrale Paris. This is the second best engineering school. In the, it's like Stanford. It would be the difference between an MIT and a Stanford. It's a very good school. And on the other hand, you have heel makers who still hand carve their first prototype heels. So we're sending our, our files to these people who don't even have the software to read the files, let alone the skill set to understand it. So I found myself in the middle of, on the one hand, the engineers, and on the other hand, the carvers. And we had to take everything the engineers were saying, simplify it, and make the people carving the heels out of wood, understand exactly what we wanted, and get the tolerances right. It, it was hard. It was hard. And then also probably pricing as well, I'm assuming, because you can come up with a, you know, Something works from an engineering point of view, but people that at a cost is something you can actually go to market with is a whole different ballgame altogether. It's actually one thing that I was always very clear about. So with ever, whichever team was working on different aspects of this innovation, I was always clear about filling in the gaps of what they didn't know. So, for example, for the engineers, I was like, you know, guys, if this can't be done in three seconds, we're not doing it. 
or if it can't hold 400 kilos, we're not doing it. And I can remember all the engineers going, no woman is actually that big. And I'm like, you know, <laughs> maybe with a baby and suitcases and you just don't know. So let's just go for it. So that was on the engineering side. Then on the heel manufacturer side, I'd say basically, you know, this, this cannot cost 300 euros. It has to be accessible because... I think there's got to be more clients for this shoe than the 200 women in the world who can afford haute couture. So I'm constantly putting pressure on the different teams to try and make the product sellable. So you use things like cost and weight and the tolerances of those things as inputs, not outputs, um, right? Where you're, give, you're giving these, these are what we must hit. You must hit a certain price point and- Oh, for sure. Okay. Oh, for sure. Because otherwise, I think we'd. You know, I think research and development could have gone on and on and on if I wasn't giving. If I wasn't framing the problem, even you know, one of the things that we've done, which is absolutely incredible, which nobody's been able to do, is our soles are the exact same soles that you would find in a luxury shoe, and that's because I knew what it should be, and I I made them work around it. Hmm. That's. That's one of those things that you don't see a lot of people doing, setting those like hard limits and kind of defining, here's how big the box is and you have to work inside that box and giving, you know, that engineering, the manufacturing, giving them hair of the specs we have to work inside. Um, I, I hear a lot of people kind of first time going to them and believing what they come out with and price is like an output and they say, okay, this is going to cost X and, and they're not coming, they're not going the other way of saying we need this cost less than, less than this and if you can't, then this just doesn't work. And that's maybe, maybe it's because previously I'd always worked with engineers. So I'm used to working with them. I'm accustomed to the way they think. And then on my, on my side, I'm more like a, a marketing person. So I, I would be very aware of how we could work together. That's kind of a key takeaway, right? Cause if you go to engineers with a problem, they tend to, they can solve that problem. That's, that's what they do. Right. Um, but if you go to them with just, I want to build the best hail, they can do that too. Um, so it depends which, how you're framing the problem with we have to build a hail that supports x amount of weight we have to do it for this price this many pieces that's a problem they can you define the problem set and they can work inside that versus going to them with we want to this is just want to build this build stop building so it really that's that's smart doing that up front of kind of defining here's, here's the boundaries i think they appreciated it because from you know the the first r d team like the first five engineers there wasn't a single woman amongst them so for them, this was really a scary project because they'd never even worn a heel. They had no idea what I was talking about. So they really needed that input. And I remember bringing shoes from my shoe collection and saying, you know, this is what a luxury shoe looks like. And, and then they're like, okay, what does a non-luxury shoe look like? And I remember going out and buying that shoe so that they could actually see the difference between the two. Hmm. Yeah, it's, it's a, uh, a good way of doing it. I feel like that's a huge tip right there of just understanding those are the inputs, not the outputs. So then let's kind of go to, so 2012, you started having some prototypes made, some 3D printed, some you know one-off bespoke ones. How did you mm -hmm. actually go from scaling that up to, hey, let's, let's do this and let's manufacture these? Okay, so I had no choice. By a complete fluke, we got accepted in a very prestigious point of sale. So by that point, I had to fill the point of sale. And I guess that's where the true nightmare began. We ended up um, opening that first point of sale with only nine pairs of shoes. 
When you say point of sale, are we talking a retail shop? Is that? Yeah. Okay, sorry, different terminology. Yeah, so a retail, like a storefront, brick and mortar. Yeah. yeah. And it wasn't mine. It was in a very prestigious, um, how do you say it in English? Department store. In a very prestigious French department store. And they're freaking out, right? Because I've only got nine pairs of shoes and 30 pairs of heels. And this is just horrible for the company because our shoes are so difficult to make that it took the factory till the very first day of summer sales to get the collection into the store. So our saleswoman's having a nervous breakdown, the French department store is having a nervous breakdown. And to this day, I'm the only brand I know in my life who didn't go out of business because she only had nine shoes to sell for, for five months. So you, so how it works in a French department store then is you have your own sales rep there? How does that actually, because process is a little different here. It is different. Okay, so in an American department store, but your model's changing, but in an American department store, you have purchasers and purchasers buy the product and they put it onto the floor. In a French department store, you have what we call shop and shops or concessions, and it's the brand that controls that space. Okay, so you actually have a physical, like almost a store within a store, essentially. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so they came to, so the department yeah. store came to you and asked, could you basically open this store inside our store? And then you have to staff that and it's your... Exactly, exactly. And it's your stock, so you, you know, they're not buying the stock from you up front. It's, it's my stock. It's your stock, you own it. They never take yeah. possession of that and they charge you rent, I'm guessing, sort of thing? Or? Exactly. A kind of a commission on sales. Commission on sales. Okay. So they kind of probably help with like point of sales, that sort of thing. But you base sell them, basically. That's exactly it. You completely understood. Okay. Yeah. So then you had, so how many units are you talking? So out of those nine SKUs, how many actual units are you talking to, to get to to even show up on day one? We had nine shoes, not nine SKUs. Oh. We had nine <laughs> shoes. Oh, okay. So <laughs> ah, I was understanding it the wrong way. So nine actual shoes. Yeah, that's okay. how bad it was. I don't think you understand how catastrophic this was. Okay. This was <laughs> I have a salesperson in class. I have a beautiful store. I have nine pairs of shoes and maybe 30 pairs of heels. Okay. And we I, I was hearing nine SKUs. I just converted yeah. that. Okay. It was a complete nightmare. A complete nightmare. So how did that, so how did that even work then, day I one? I think bad can happen to me. What? Well, obviously the department store is freaking out. I don't think they'll ever talk to us. Even if I become the most successful brand in the world, I'm here to tell you that department store will never let my brand into their store. <laughs> you burnt that bridge. Forever, forever yep. and ever. Um, simultaneously, you know, our website's going live. And I, I know that, that this is part of, uh, of why, why we're talking today. In the very first year of that website, we sold eight pairs of shoes. Wow. <laughs> it, was a, it, was, it was a complete catastrophe. Okay, so eight pairs, so you sold, <laughs> so nine shoes in the store and eight pairs on the website. Yeah. Okay, and then as of today, we're up to 17,000 pairs of shoes and 70 hills. Yeah. Okay, that's a pretty big uh, a curve since 2013. <laughs> yeah, thank goodness. Yeah, you get it uh, up, up and to the right. Yeah. So what it turned out to be is it turned out to be, so I don't know if this is interesting to people who listen to you, but what we do is so innovative. It's so disruptive. Um, and also I'm the first one who does this. So I'm not a copycat or a counterfeit product. So I'm doing the hard learning. I'm continuously investing in making the product better 
So at this point, I'm now hiring shoe experts. Like, so for example, oh, I bought a factory. So I bought a factory in 2016. Wow. So okay. when most people would be spending on marketing, yep. I'm busy trying to make sure that my tolerances are perfect regardless of vintage. And I'm trying to improve the quality of the shoes. At this point, I have two employees in place at the shoe factory, making sure that every single shoe is perfect. And we've just put that in place, I guess a month and a half ago. Everything that I'm currently making, I can say honestly, is light years, light years, light years beyond what we made even last year. And I guess the pride comes in that now if I go to Galerie Lafayette, like one of our big deal department stores, we have a comparable quality level to a shoe that would be double our price. So all of this investment in product, um, even things like the tolerances of my heels, I bought something that could regulate the temperature in the factory so that all of my plastics would be drying under the same conditions. So that regardless of whether it's produced in September, December, or May, the exact same conditions can be reproduced at all times for all of the heels and for all of the technical components. And you know, since they're all coming off this, through the same factory, through the same process, same assembly line, the pair of shoes you bought last year, are there going to be the same pair of shoes next year? And you know, the quality doesn't jump around based on where they were made and you know, what That's process. That's the biggest achievement of my brand because that's the promise. Yep. The promise is is that we're protecting your investment and that if you bought a pair of shoes from us three years ago, by all means, that pair of heels that you bought as a Christmas heel can go into those three-year-old shoes. And if we didn't do that, I feel very deeply that we'd be ripping off clients. So in order to achieve that, we had to go to a level of, of production investment, which I'd never anticipated before. Yeah, it's an interesting way to go, right? Because I know, so for instance, we're talking right now on a uh, a, cam a Canon camera. And, mm -hmm. you know, this camera was produced last year, but I could also fit a lens on it from 15 years ago, and it works just fine. And every every lens that's produced in 20-something years with Canon fits exactly the same way. It's the same mount. You know, it just clicks on there, and it, it fits snug. And that's something, and same thing you said about having the, you know, the coffee, same thing. Knowing that the accessory you buy for it in a year or two years is going to fit today's product is huge. And that's the reason why, for instance, I buy Canon, just because I know I can buy any lens and in four years when I want to buy a new one, it'll fit this one. I don't need to, you know, every time just like rip out my whole collection and start over. So it's a huge kind of takeaway that well, I think um, actually, Back when I was developing, um, I bought, it sounds stupid, but I'd seen these ad on, ads on TV and I bought this German engineered mop. And it was supposed to be like this mop that cleaned the house while you were reading The Economist. And basically, so I got the mop and I loved the mop. And then I thought, oh, I'll buy the broom. And then so the broom part came, but the handle of the mop didn't work on the broom. And I thought, you know, what the hell? German engineers are supposed to be like the best product engineers in the world. And can't they create a system where, and also, you know, engineers are supposed to create systems. And I'm thinking, can't they create a system where it's the same handle, regardless of what sort of cleaning head you put on the handle? So I, I remember feeling completely disappointed in that, that brand and thinking my brand won't be like that. Anything that a woman buys should be able to be used for the rest of that woman's life or the product's life. Yeah, that's a, uh, I've never heard, I've heard people take, get with that take on it, but going all the way to actually buying the factory, um, 
because I've talked to people on the show where you have to go to the factory and see each one. Where is the factory, by the way, physically? So I have two factories. So one is in Angers, which is in the west of France. It's a very, very beautiful region. And I'll probably open up my factory store there. So, you know, if anyone's looking at the castles, they can come by for, for our factory outlet. And our shoes are now produced in Portugal. And that was the final element that was necessary. Up until December of 2017, every single shoe was produced in France. And that meant that they were really quite expensive. By producing in Portugal, some of the models are half the price that they were last year. Um, but this has been important to the brand because now I would say everything's in place for us to become a credible brand gotcha. from the product side, from the yep. product side. So I think now the company is transitioning from being very focused on product and technology to now we're going to start thinking about marketing. Yeah, I've had a few people on the show too where they talk about they're purchasing, they're in the US and they're purchasing from overseas manufacturers and when the products show up, it's almost like a crapshoot of seeing, is, is this the right quality? And if it's not, you basically have to send it back and start over and it takes weeks and weeks and weeks to get it over here and then to realize this just isn't right and to send it back, it's you can basically run out of stock um, on a particular SKU just in that waiting game because if you purchase it you're going to keep selling it and then if not stock not just stock but but treasury as well and if you add to it that it's fashion we can't wait those weeks yep because the climate change changes so 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 frequently that i can't if i need sandals now i really do need sandals now yeah so it, it's it is seasonal right where if you miss it by four months then it's over and oh, you have to wait till next year especially company-wide game over yeah Okay, so then how did you go from 2013 selling eight to then selling 17,000? <laughs> what, what, what actually made that do that little arc? We're lucky in two areas. We do something unique. So I have a lot of copiers, um, and they're better in marketing than me, unquestionably. They're also better in digital than I am. However, I'm better at doing what I do, which is creating multi-height shoes that fit into a woman's life and that actually work and that can be, you know, done by a woman. So I think the customer satisfaction is very high. So I don't have a lot of reviews, but the reviews that I have, I'd say we're practically 100, we're about 98% five stars. So people like what we do. We have an incredible loyalty rate. So 65% of my customers have already bought at least one other pair of shoes. So that's just astonishing. And we have kind of, we've got a good word of mouth. So you can be pretty sure that the girl who's bought a pair of shoes in my store, the very first party she's going to go to, she's going to be doing some kind of heel click demonstration so that all of her friends can see. So I get, for example, if, you, if I look at my web sales, 80% of my web sales are going to the States, maybe 70%, that's a bit high, but 70% are going to the States. And then when they write, because I write everybody a personal note, so they write back to me, which is nice, it's gratifying. Um, they'll say, oh yeah, I heard about this from Jeannie, or I saw it on the foot of Pammy, or, you know, they'll tell me the story that led me, led them to, to purchase my shoe. And what I can see is that it's a lot of word of mouth. So that, so really is that, that word of mouth could actually get you to that tens of thousands level. That's 
without, are you doing marketing or like how, how is that playing into this? Those are the two ingredients. I also have now four, four stores. So I opened Beijing three weeks ago, Beijing in China. So we have Paris, Toronto, Beirut, Beijing. Today, three more stores in Beirut opened. So they're in a very luxurious um, department store called ABC. And in January, we're opening Hong Kong. So definitely having stores helps with volume. Having a website helps people keep people satisfied. And yeah, it's word of mouth. They probably play off each other too, right? Where I'm picturing a lot of people like visiting a store, they're on vacation, that sort of thing. And a lot of times you see something, but you're not ready to buy it. And you take the little card and you go home to the States, wherever you are and say, you know what? I actually want those. And then you just go online and buy them. That's the thing. So it's almost like the stores help the website and the website helps the stores and they kind of work. There's this more than that. It's even more than that. Americans will tell me timing. So so if I look at my sales out of the Paris store, 35% of those sales are going directly to United uh, to, to New York, one city in the States. So those women who are buying in my store are telling me clearly that they wouldn't buy if they couldn't order again on a website. So for it, it, it's non it's non negotiable. We have to have a website. Okay, so people are, so people might be seeing these on vacation sort of thing. They're traveling. They spot it in a store, and then they, they they buy a pair, but they have to, like you said, get those replacements. Get their get their K cups basically online, so they can go home to New York and keep ordering more forever, and know that those will fit the shoes they just spent you know a few hundred. I'm guessing a couple hundred euros on on vacation. Yeah, you're almost like a girl. That's it, exactly. So that's exactly <laughs> what my clients think. So another thing that's astonishing is you'll get clients walking into my store and they'll go, I want one Sabine, a Black Denis, and a Red Francois. They're naming your product by the product names you gave them, and you know they're spending time online. In fact, if I look at Google Analytics, the average time um, – before a client can, you know, in between when a client lands on my site and when they purchase is 45 minutes. They're trying a lot of different combinations. So same thing like the, uh, like the, what is it like buying a car, that configurator, you go online and you, you do that 20 times and you realize, like, uh, and you kind of play around with different options, different colors. And then you finally walk into the dealer and say, I know the car, you know, I've spent two hours on your website and I'm ready. Let's just test. Let's do this. Well, I wish it was that. So that's the next step. So as we transition into being a bit more of a marketing company, we actually have to develop an application which would allow people to drag and drop different heels and different colors onto their shoe so that they could visualize before buying. At the moment, I'm really just like I'm counting on the inner Carl Lagerfeld of all of my clients. So they're actually composing packages for themselves without knowing for sure what it looks like. I see. I wanted to ask what what percentage of sales are online versus retail, but it almost doesn't matter, it sounds like, the answer to that question, just because they seem like they're so intertwined that, that like you need- it, you, it's 50-50, so 50/50. I have an answer for that. Yep. So 50% are online, 50% are, are in store. However, that's my store. If we open a store, it takes a very, it takes maybe, two years for the online to really start rolling because at the very beginning, people do need to experience how the shoe works. Yeah. It's almost like, and you need, like you need them to work together almost. It sounds like. 
Yes. Yeah. Yes. How do you deal with the copycats? Because I feel like in fashion, that's one of those things that you mentioned it, and I know that's just an ongoing thing where um, you're doing something and there's a lot of followers. How do you kind of how do you deal with that, or where do you kind of see them positioned? Okay. Well, on, on the one hand, the only person who truly does have a patent is me. So the others, some of them say they do, but they don't. Um, so that's one thing to say. Do I litigate? No, because at the end of the day, this system costs a lot of money. It probably would cost me in between forty-five to 80000 to litigate. And what would I necessarily win? I'm not 100% sure. So that's the first thing I have to say. The second thing I have to say is, in an emotional way, it kind of hurts. So some people have changed their name to Tanya Heath. Some people pretend that they're me. Um, in Brazil, two years ago, there were 11 stores with my name on them that I didn't own. And you're thinking, wow, you know, I still don't have a salary. So I've been working for free since 2009. I've never been funded. So every single cent that I've put into this company is blood, sweat, and tears. And these people could so easily work with me instead of having some crappy copy product. So, you know, you're a bit miffed. And then there's my mentor. So my mentor owns one of the most successful shoe brands in the entire planet. And he said, you know, Tanya, I know I can tell you're destroyed by this. And he goes, just close your eyes and pretend it doesn't exist. So that's my official way of dealing with it. And then I guess lately, um, as I entered China and, you know, I saw how deep and vast the, the counterfeit really is, I guess I'm a bit flattered. You know, I've created something that there's at least 300 other companies out there or people or individuals who thought that despite the fact that we are no money whatsoever, that they would spend their entire life copying. So maybe I should just be flattered. <laughs> that's a That's a positive way of looking at it. You, it's... It's one of those things too, where people are able to copy what you do, but they can't copy why you did it. Um, and that's the way I've always kind of looked at that from that perspective on, they don't see the mistake, the, that blood, sweat, and sweat, that blood, sweat, and tears. It wasn't, you, you needed to go through that process to realize why you're building it the way you are today and why the tolerances are important and why you do stuff and use a certain fabric. You're right about that. And that's not even the why. The why is, is that I very, you know, I live in France, right? So I'm never going to be prime minister of France or president of France. And, you know, my political voice here is I can vote. But why did I do this? Because I don't think there's any woman in the world who should be held back by their footwear. And I think that women should have the right to express different aspects of their personality as they choose to. So if they want to be a professional woman, they should be. If they want to be safe coming home in public transit, they should be. If they want to be safe while they're driving their car, they should be. If they want to be comfortable, they should be. If they want to be like super sexy and pole dance, they should be able to. And it's not for a brand to pigeon women into any category. And this really is the why I did it. And I think that that resonates a lot with my customers. And the copycats don't even come close to understanding that why but then if we get back to the tolerances i laugh like i laugh i have quite a few copycats at the um at the factory and you know maybe it's bad for business to have so many crappy products out there but you know our product is good so at the end of the day this company 
I always expect it to behave like one of my children, you know? So I tell my friends, if I send my kids to, to a friend's house for a sleepover, I don't want a phone call the next day with somebody complaining about my children in the same way that I don't want customer service letters complaining about my shoes. I want them to be perfect. I love it. I think uh, having that why, that's the key right there where, you know, people, people buy because of that why and that, that goal. And that's also why people can't, they can only copy where you are today, but they can't copy where you're going. And they don't, they can only, they're always behind you a certain, you know, a number of steps. We share our vision statement and I'm wedded to our vision statement, but, and, and I'll share it online. Our vision statement is to say that we will consistently use technology and innovation to make the lives of professional women the world over more comfortable and glamorous. And if it doesn't fit in that station uh, statement, we won't do it. But it does mean that I do plan on, on launching other ideas. Awesome. I think it's a great place to end it, actually. That, uh, that's perfect. So if people want to contact you, if they want to learn more about the shoes, learn more about you, where can they do so? TanyaHeath.com online. And online, they can just write to us at um, contact at TanyaHeath.com. Awesome. I'll link to that in the show notes. And thanks for coming on. It was great chatting with you. Thanks very much. Thank you.